Well, good morning again, and greetings to each of you in Jesus' name this morning. That song was very fitting. We now have met to worship Thee. And we're here to worship God and to look into His Word. And my prayer this morning is that I can be simply a servant, a mouthpiece for Him. We've been studying through the book of First Peter, and as we enter into chapter 3 this morning, you can turn there if you have your Bible with you. First Peter chapter 3. It's beginning with a background in chapter 2. We looked at chapter 2 the last two Sundays. And in chapter 2, Peter lays out that our person and our place are secure with God as, as believers. And so we have this place of security with God. And that our time here on earth is to fulfill a purpose. That we have a purpose here. And our security is in Christ and it's somewhat separated from in, in the sense that um, it's not our security does not rest on our experience here. Our, our security rests in God, in heavenly places. That's where our citizenship is. But we have a purpose here, a purpose as ambassadors, that we as, a, as children of the kingdom of heaven, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, that we would relate to the people here in this world as ambassadors. And he, ex he begins to explain in chapter 2 that as we relate to people here in this world, we're going to experience suffering. We're going to encounter suffering as a result sometimes of the sins of others. And he uses, he says in verse 21 of chapter 2, he says, for even here and two were you called. You were called to this. To follow in the steps of Jesus. And I thought our Sunday school lesson this morning was so fitting because I thought about some verses there in chapter 2. Verse 22, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. In the men's class, we talked about that Christ went through all of this for his creation. And he suffered for his creation. And the kind of love and sacrifice that he had to have, the kind of love that he had to have to be willing to make that sacrifice. And Jesus, it goes on to say here in these verses that Jesus bore that suffering without retaliation. With the perspective of committing Himself into the hands of a righteous judge. His security was in God. And He went through that trial. He went through that experience. Secure in God. Secure in the plan of God. Secure in the fact that beyond the cross there was joy. And that's how He endured the suffering. And that suffering was to fulfill a divine purpose. In chapter 3, verse 18, it says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God. It had a divine purpose. That suffering did. And it was to bring us to God. And your life as a follower has a divine purpose to be an ambassador for His kingdom. And as we establish relationships with the people who are part of this world, the flesh and blood relationships that we have, as they observe how we relate to human authority, as they observe how we respond to suffering, that will set the stage for us to fulfill our purpose as ambassadors. That was kind of the, 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 the thrust of the message last Sunday and the message that I saw in chapter 2. How many of you have ever read the book Wang Ping's Sacrifice? Nobody. 
Maybe. I didn't see any hands. Well, it's a collection of stories, but the story, the, the title of the book is taken from the first story. It's about a man who was, who was a Chinese man. He lived in a town. He, him and his family were the only believers in that town. And for years, he witnessed to the people of his community. And all those years, he had no converts. Nobody was coming to the gospel. And he was just, he was out in the fields, the rice fields, working one day, and he was just burdened about the fact that no one was coming to the gospel. That all of these people in his town that he knew so well were lost and separated from Jesus Christ. And he was praying about this. And as he was praying about this, he thought about a boy who was sick in his village. A young man, a man of 18, 19 years old. And he thought about this boy who was sick and was possibly going to die because of this sickness. And he thought, I should go see him tonight. And as he thought about that, he thought about his daughter, his daughters. He had two daughters. And he thought, the thought came to him through the Holy Spirit, would I be willing to sacrifice the life of one of my daughters who knows the Lord for this young man who doesn't know the Lord? And so he went to see that man this night, that night, and he was talking to him, and, and there were other people there in the room. I'm not sure who all was involved, but um, anyway, he was, he was there for, talking to that young man. And he asked that young man if he could pray for him. And he said, yes, he could. So he, he prayed for him. And as, as he was praying, he just felt this tremendously strong impression that he should offer to God his daughter's life for the life of this young man. And that's what he did in that prayer. And the people there were just could not believe what he had just done. And he went home and he talked to his daughter about it. And his daughter said, I'm willing to give my life for the salvation of this young man. If that's what the Lord's will is. Well, his daughter got sick. And she started to get worse and worse and worse. And this young man started to get better. And this spread throughout the whole village. And these people were watching what was going on. They couldn't believe what was happening. They couldn't believe that this man was willing to sacrifice his daughter for someone he didn't know that well. Someone who wasn't even related to. The daughter died. The young man was healed. The daughter was a believer in Jesus and went on to her eternal reward with Him the young man gave his life to Jesus Christ. And more people in that village gave their lives to Jesus Christ. And most of the people in that village were converted because of the willingness of this man to suffer, to sacrifice something that he loved dearly. You know what that man did? He showed a picture of what God did for you and me. To what point, I'm going to make this personal because this has been on my heart as I've, started to, as I've studied this book of 1 Peter. To what point am I willing to suffer for others? To what point am I willing to suffer for the wrong of others? That challenges me. And I believe we need to view our human relationships through the perspective of fulfilling our purpose and be willing to suffer to fulfill our purpose. Because that was Christ's example. And it's that kind of an example that He left us that it's talking about here as it goes into chapter 3. And verse 1 and verse 7, it begins with likewise. In that same way, that same kind of willingness to suffer for others. Likewise. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. 
while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of the plaiting of the hair and of wearing of gold and putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is incorruptible, even the ornament of a meek and a quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner, in old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection to their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. Likewise ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Saying likewise, it's saying in this same manner. Now, it's shifting from our relationships that are, you know, somewhat external, like relationships with authority and relationships with servants and masters or, you know, employees to an employer to employee. It's shifting to a relationship that's a lot closer home. It's a relationship of husband and wife. I was, um, I've been having some computer problems at the chicken house. They installed a new program on, on the computer that controls the, controls the conditions inside the house. And one of those controls operates the feed and it puts in a certain amount of feed every day. And I can set the amount of feed that should go in and it puts in that amount of feed every day. And this one, the one house was, the one, program was working perfectly and the other one it wasn't and um, so some people came out to work on that some electricians and they fiddled around with the wiring and tried this and tried that and tried reversing the houses and putting the one uh, the one feed tank on the one house and the other one on the opposite one to see if they could get this problem figured out they couldn't get it figured out Anyway, so they left and thought they had set everything back like it was. And out at the out at the feed tanks, there's this little box, and it has a readout of the actual weight of feed in that in that bin. And I depend on that, so the one house wasn't working. So I was always going by there and comparing the two tanks and seeing if the one was going down as much as the other. And that way, I knew that the right amount of feed had gone out to those to those birds during that day. Well, that evening after, after I was done with the work, I drove past and I looked at those digital scales and they said, both of them said, no bin. And I was like, oh boy. Now, now I'm not going to have any way to know how much feed my chickens are getting. And um, so anyway, I called them and it didn't suit them to come out that, um, that week. And so it ended up being the first of the next week till they got out there to, to fix this thing. And we spent about an hour trying to figure out what was wrong only to find out that at one place in each house, they had swapped wires on posts. When they were doing all that changing around, they put the positive to the negative side and the negative to the positive side. It was low voltage stuff, so it didn't cause any sparks or anything. It just shut down the, just shut down the readout. When Mark 10, 6, Jesus said, from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. God wired us. God created us. And the state of marriage is the foundation of community. God began community when He created Adam and Eve. He began community. And God wired us. And we can't cross the wiring and expect to come up with the right results. God wants His children to model His design for their good, for their children's good, and for the good of the society that they live in. And so God is giving us some instruction here in these first seven verses of this chapter about what that model should look like. Now we're going to look at these, but I want us to keep in mind that we're looking at these from the perspective of Matthew 7, 3. 
And that perspective is, and I have to remind myself about this perspective when it comes to close relationships. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 3, and this is not an exact quotation, this is my words. Jesus says, why do you try to get the moat out of your friend's eye and you don't consider the beam that's in your own eye? And so as we look down through here, we're talking about us considering our own responsibility. That's what the focus is. It's our own responsibility. So verses 1 through 6 are directed to wives. And one phrase here in the first verse really caught my attention. And it's this. Be one by the conversation of the wife. That they might be one. See, that's talking about a winning... Um, that's talking about a drawing uh, thing that's happening here. So let's look back. Who might be one? Be in subjection to your own husbands that if any obey not the Word, so it's, it's where they don't obey the Word, that they also may without the Word be won by the conversation of the wife. So this instruction that's given here to the wife is a way that she can win her husband. That she can have a drawing effect on her husband. Maybe one to what, I guess you could ask. Well, it would be to obedience to the Word. What does obedience to the Word bring? We looked at that in the first chapter. Obedience to the Word leads us to love. Well, you might look at this and say, well, I guess maybe I should just tell you that before I studied this, I often thought about this as being husbands that were unbelieving. But I started to think about it a little bit differently as I looked at it this morning. You know, to my shame, there are times when I as a husband do not obey the Word. There may be areas in my life that I do not obey the Word that my wife can see. How can she win me to that obedience? My guess is that I'm not the only imperfect husband here. You see, we started, when we got married, we thought about this, this beautiful experience that we were going to have after we got married. We were going to get married and things were just going to be wonderful. And then reality set in. Well, what's that reality? It's the reality that none of us are perfect. And that my spouse isn't perfect after all. And yeah, we knew that in the back of our minds. But we didn't realize the significant impact that it would have on our relationship over time. So wives, what are you to do? You see, submitting to somebody that's imperfect puts you in a vulnerable position. We're going to come back to that in a little bit, but it's telling you that by how you live, not by how you, not by how you speak, not by telling Him what to do, but by living what you should be, you will draw Him towards obedience. May without the Word be won by the conversation of the wife. What is that? Well, that conversation means lifestyle. And so I'll just... Uh, say that up front. So when I say conversation, which is what it says here in the King James text, that means lifestyle. So by your lifestyle, the way you live will speak to Him. And in verse 2, it gives us the two ways or two ways that she will speak through that. Chaste is one, which means modest, clean, and pure is the Greek definition there for that word. And then there's fear, which can mean to be frightened of, but it also has... The idea of respect of one's husband. So let's I'm gonna look at those in reverse. The first thing I'm gonna think about is fear. So does your husband need an ego boost? Some people talk about this whole issue of respect, as you know, your husband's ego needs to be boosted up. But I don't think that's what it means. I think what it means is 
that what he needs is someone who trusts and depends on him to come through. Your husband needs to know that you trust him and you are depending on him to come through, to be strong, to be the leader. You're depending on him. He needs to know that. And your respect for him shows him that you have that desire, that he would be the man of the home, that he would be the one who would come through. And that's a tremendous motivator in the life of a man. I received a letter. It was actually a school paper that was written um, by a young man that went to our church years ago. And he wrote out this letter as if um, I was a hero of faith. And so I think the assignment was they were supposed to write about somebody who was a hero of faith to them. And he wrote it about me. And I want to tell you something, brothers and sisters, that was such a tremendous motivator to me to be the kind of man that I should be. Because here was a young brother who looked at me as if I was a hero. And when you look at your husband with that kind of respect, that is a tremendous motivator in his life. How about chaste? Well, a woman has two kinds of beauty. She has a beauty of sensuality and she has a beauty of modesty. That's not original with me. Val Yoder talked about marriage. I was at a seminar or a, a weekend of meetings where he talked about marriage and and he talked about these two different forms of beauty that a woman has. And a woman's, a woman's sensual beauty is designed for her marriage. And a woman's beauty of modesty, God made for her life. And it talks about those two different kinds of beauty in verses 3 and 4. Whose adorning, let it not be the outward adorning, the plating of the hair, the wearing of gold, and the putting on of apparel. So it's talking about accentuating her sensual beauty. By doing those things, she is bringing into focus that aspect of her beauty. And Peter is saying here, don't, that is not the kind of attention that you want to draw. That's not what your goal is. In, this, in the world. You see, and I don't think a lot of women understand this, but when a woman displays her sensual beauty publicly, she's actually offering herself to every man who sees her. She's offering that beauty to every man who sees her. And so if a woman is married and she's presenting herself that way, she's actually saying to her husband, I'm not enough. You're not enough for me. I need to attract more men. Now, she might not be even consciously thinking about that or understanding what she's doing. But what does God want women to display? Verse 4. But let it be, instead of being this outward adornment, but let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and a quiet spirit which is in the sight of God of great price. You see, when that sensual beauty is modestly covered, there's this beauty, this inner beauty, this deep inner beauty that shines out of the life. And that's what God wants to be displayed. God wants people to see that inner beauty. And not only does it show to people the inner beauty that God's doing in your life, it also shows your husband 
that you're committed and content within your relationship with Him. He is enough man for you. You don't need to attract other men. In the sight of God of great price, it exposes the work of God's Spirit in your life. And verse 5, it reveals something else. It reveals that your trust is in Him. Because you see, you are placing yourself in this vulnerable position. But your trust is in Him. And so you follow His ways because your trust is in Him and your security is in Him. Your life is in Him. Look ahead to verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and His ears are open unto their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. So this woman who's following the directive of God, who's placed her trust in God, the eyes of the Lord are upon her. The ears of the Lord are open to her prayers. And it gives the example of the holy women and of Sarah displaying this kind of character. And you see in Sarah's day, security was wrapped up in, in children. If you didn't have children, if you didn't have sons, and your husband died, you were in big trouble. You would have no way for survival, no means of survival. Their security was tied up in that. We don't understand that because our culture is not that way. The society we live in isn't that way. We don't understand that nearly as much. But it's saying here that, that these women trusted in God in that environment by committing themselves to this marital relationship that they had. And they trusted in God to provide within this relationship. So the question is, is it really vulnerable then? And that question would come back to, is your trust in God? Is your security in God? And that's what makes the difference. Well, what I, where I'm going with this is, you wives this morning, how do you think about your relationship with your husband. Do you think about it as with, with still having that beauty ahead of you, that beauty in mind, that beauty in, in your focus, that as you live, you're going to make your marriage more and more beautiful? Because you're going to live out the principles of God and that's going to draw your husband to you. It's going to draw him to obedience. You're going to be obeying. And ultimately, it's going to create a better love relationship between you two. Do you have a redemptive understanding of marriage? Do you think about it that way? How about us husbands? Verse 7, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. So I'd like to look, first of all, at this word, weaker vessel. It's kind of an interesting word to me. It's kind of interesting that it's, that it's used here. But I want us to notice, to begin with, it says giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. And I don't know what all might be implied here, but I believe it's referring to the more sensitive nature of women. It's referring to the fact that women are inclined to make decisions based on the emotional needs of a person than they are on the cold, hard facts of the situation. And brothers, I'm going to tell you something. At times that is very, very valuable to our relationship. Very valuable. 
It's been very valuable in my relationship, especially with my children. Because my wife sees things and reminds me that maybe we don't just need the facts in this situation. Maybe we need more than just the facts. Maybe we need a touch of love to go along with those facts. Husbands, do we think about the value that our wives bring to this relationship? Do you give honor to your wife as to the weaker vessel? As to the one who is sensitive to those things? Another thing that we're supposed to do in this verse as part of this is to dwell with them according to knowledge. And I find that interesting because at least in my experience, there's a lot of things that I like to have knowledge about. But how interested am I about understanding my wife? About understanding her mind? about understanding who she is and what she cares about and what's important to her. Do I dwell with my wife according to knowledge? Do I seek to understand her? And do I engage in that? Do I engage in that pursuit of understanding her? Because you see, it's easy as, as life moves on and... and we face new responsibilities and stuff to just take that relationship for granted and to just be comfortable with the way things are and not pursue learning to know our wife better and better and better through the years. And we have to be engaged to do that. We can't just do that by being withdrawn or focusing on our own thing. We have to engage in that. Are we dwelling with them according to knowledge? You see, from the moment that you said, I do, your life was together. And you need to understand life that way. You need to think about your relationship that way. You're heirs together of the grace of life. Does your desire, what does your desire to understand her, to know her, show to her? It shows to her that she is still the one that you want to be with for the rest of your life. She's still the one for you. And that's tremendously powerful for a wife. Husbands, how do you think about your relationship with your wife? Are you willing to sacrifice to give this relationship the significance it deserves? And are you engaged in finding ways to bring it to the beauty that you thought should be there before you were married? That you thought was going to be there? Are you committed to that beauty, that same beauty that draws you together and brings you to obedience and ultimately to love? And... Do you recognize the spiritual implications of the nature of your relationship? And see, that's in the last part of the verse. That your prayers be not hindered. And I don't know, I don't have time to get into this a lot, but I've been thinking about, the Bible doesn't use the word relationship. I think it uses another word instead. It's the word spiritual. You see... I can't really flesh that out, but where does relationship exist? It exists in the heart. Where does love come from? It comes from the heart. But what's the fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is love. See, that's spiritual. And we know from the Scripture, from the message of the Bible, that our relationship 
with people has implications to our relationship with God. And you see, if there's problems in our relationships here, then there's going to be a barrier between our our relationship with God. That your prayers be not hindered. In Colossians 3.19, it says, Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. What's talking about bitterness here is talking about a barrier between you and your wife. A barrier of bitterness between you. And it's that kind of thing that's going to hinder your prayers. The barrier in your relationship between the two of you will also be a barrier in your relationship with God. So our marriage relationship has tremendous significance on our spiritual condition. Moving on to these following verses. Verse 8 says that we're to have one mind and we are to be these things. We're to be compassionate, to have brotherly love, sympathy, and kindness. If this is what you are, if that's the kind of person that you are, then that's the kind of thing that you're going to give. That's going to come out of who you are. And it goes on to say, not rendering evil for evil, railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing. Know, knowing that ye were there and to call, that ye should inherit a blessing. So this verse is saying, if, you're, if, if evil was done to you, don't do evil in return. Bless those people because you are going to inherit a blessing. So it's saying we're responsible not for what we receive, we're responsible for what we give. So don't give the wrong thing. Give the right thing. And ultimately, understand that as a result of that, you receive the right thing. Give a blessing and receive a blessing. But you're responsible, first of all, to give the right thing, regardless of what you receive. And it goes on to say, For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. Do you want to experience a good life? I think everybody would... I I think that would be universal agreement. That everybody wants to experience a good life. The difference would come in how we, what we mean when we say that. And here God is saying, do you want to experience a good life? Well, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and ensue it. Here's the key. Here's the answer. Here's what you need to give to experience a good life. I'd like for us to think just a little bit about this issue of or this this thing right here at the end of the verse of ensue it. That that word means to pursue or to press forward. And I thought about I thought about this whole thing, this this whole thing of ambassadors and, and our place here, our purpose here. And I was trying to think how to how to bring that into an illustration. And I thought about two stories. One story was about when I was probably I don't know, 12 or 13 years old, I was on a bicycle with my sister and I went across a dry river slab. The slab's up off of West Dry River Road. And um, there was water going across the slab and I wasn't a very big boy. And as I was going across that slab, um, I had to get off my bike. And about the time I got off my bike, I wasn't quite heavy enough to stand against the current. And I started to slip down off the slab. And my sister was older than me and she was just enough heavier that she wasn't. And she went on a cross. Well, I slid off the slab and there were some great big rocks, probably 
two or three feet high on the bottom side of that slab. And, and I got up against that, those rocks and I just braced against the current. And all I could do was stand there. I could not move. I just braced against the current, leaning into it and letting the force of the water hold me in that position. I was helpless. I was overcome by the stream. If nothing and no one would have been there, eventually, I'd have gone down the stream. Fortunately, my sister went and got my dad, came back, and he pulled me out. I was able to get out of that. Well, my question is, is that the perspective that you have about the Christian life? That we're just in this stream of evil that is just going to wash us away. And all we can do is just brace up and lock down and, and stand there and just hope that maybe we'll survive. Maybe somebody will come and pull us out someday. Is that our perspective about the Christian experience? Is that our perspective about the church? Well, there's something else I thought about as a young boy. Before I was even in school, one of the big things in our community was playing softball. And before I was even in school, I was probably four or five years old. My brothers, my, my oldest brother and sister, and I started playing softball in the yard. And we'd go out and we'd play softball in the yard. And I remember after both of them went to school that I would go out with a softball and I'd throw it up and I'd hit it. And I'd go out to where the ball was and I'd throw it up and I'd hit it back. And I'd spend a lot of time doing that. I mean, softball to me was really important. And I loved playing softball. Well, I still enjoy playing softball. But one of the things that, that, one of the things that made me think about this story was the fact that when I play softball, I don't just go and expect to survive. I expect to go and I expect to make things happen. That is my goal. I want to win that game and I want to be part of the winning effort. And so if I'm out, you know, playing in the field, I'm basically, I'm daring that batter to hit the ball to me because I'm going to get him out. And if I'm up to bat, I've got my feet planted and I don't intend to just get on base. I intend to get home. I intend to make runs happen. That's how I think about softball. Now, my question to you is, is that how you think about the Christian life? Do you think about the Christian life like you are a force to be reckoned with? You have something to give to the kingdom of God. You have a position in Christ that is secure. You have your feet planted. And you are getting ready to drive in a run. You're getting ready to make good happen. It's only because of your security in Christ. I recognize that. I'm saying that from that perspective. Is that your perspective about the Christian life? You see, I believe that is the perspective that God wants us to have about the Christian life. God wants us to not just timidly be thinking that maybe some good will come out eventually. God wants us to think about us as a force for good in the world. We're standing on the edge. We're standing securely in our place in Christ and we're on the edge of darkness. And we're going to push that darkness back with good. And that's what it's talking about. It's talking about pursuing good. Seek peace and pursue it. You know, thinking back to the illustration about softball, um, that doesn't just happen by me just, you know, whatever. It happens by me being engaged. And that's one of the things I want us to think about this morning in relation to this idea of that we are a force for good. We are going to have to be, as people, we're going to have to be engaged. We're going to have to be at that same intense level of concentration that it takes to do well. And what I find interesting about that is that this is something that scientists and scientists are finding out that 
when we have that kind of engagement, that it affects us both psychologically and biologically. You see, when we're engaged like that, we're at a place that is where our bodies are actually releasing chemicals as a result of our engagement, what our mind is doing. And those chemicals give us energy and they ward off anxiety, fear of failure. And those are the very chemicals that they give people to deal with, guess what? Suffering. So we're talking about suffering for doing good. And God has designed it so that when we obey Him, when we engage with Him, we engage in His kingdom, that we are actually, it's actually producing in our bodies naturally what we need to fulfill that calling. And He gives us the help of His Spirit too. I don't want to minimize that, but I'm saying that we're designed for this kind of engagement. Another thing that they find is that when people just want to shrink back and, and be in a secure place, and that's all they want is just to be secure, that it actually leads that, those, some of those aspects and chemical releases to shut down. And so they tend towards anxiety and depression if they just want to be secure. God knew that all along. We're just finding some of those things out on a scientific level. But God designed us to be engaged and to fulfill our purpose. In verse 12, we already looked at that just a little bit, and God is ready to help us to succeed and being that force for good. His eyes are watching. His ears are open to our prayers. But His face is turned against those who are promoting evil. In verse 13, And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? So what's the attraction of a novel? It's that the good guy wins, right? I mean, I've read a couple books where the good guy didn't win or where it ended up with a bad ending. And I just, I just don't like those books. It just kind of leaves me whatever. And in general, the people around us observe those who do good and they appreciate those people. And that's the principle that he's talking about here. Who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? And that's one of the things that people said about the early Anabaptists, the, the general society. You know, they, they looked at all the good that they were doing. And they said, these are good people. And when the church was persecuting them, they were saying, this isn't right. And what did that do? That put the Anabaptists in a position, those suffering people, it put them in a position to share the gospel, to share the reason why they were willing to suffer for doing good. And that's the principle it's talking about here. In verse 14, it talks about, but if you do suffer for righteousness sake, so we will potentially suffer. And we can look at history and see the kind of people who, who good people have suffered at the hands of. It's been the people with, with motives, uh, evil motives, who have caused suffering. And that's going to happen. It's going to continue in our world today. There's more Christian suffering today than it's ever been. And it's going to continue. Be not afraid of their terror neither be troubled, but sanctify or set apart and make the focus the Lord God in your hearts. In the face of the fact that we may suffer for good, make Christ the focus. Make God the focus. Set Him apart in your heart and make Him the focus of your heart. Why? Because you're going to have opportunities to be ready always to give an answer to Him that asketh of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. See, you can face the suffering. You can deal with unjust suffering the same way that Christ did, committing yourselves into the hands of a just God. And that will bring questions to people's minds. Why? Why are you willing to suffer? And you can give them the answer 
In verse 16, it will bring conviction to your enemies. Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. So it's going to bring conviction to those who have wrong motives. For it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil. Than for evil. Why? Why is it better to suffer for well-doing? It goes on to explain, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Christ's example shows us why. Because it has a redemptive nature. Suffering for the wrong of others has a redemptive nature. And I've been, I've been thinking about this. I've been trying to put this together in my mind. And, and, and I, don't, I don't think I have it completely, completely put together. Maybe never will. But what is it about suffering that draws people to the kingdom? What is it about Christ's suffering that draws us? And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. And how does that relate to my experience? And am I willing to suffer unjustly for Christ as He suffered for me? Maybe those are some things we can ponder this week as we interact with those close to us and those that aren't as close. And may we prepare our hearts, sanctify our hearts, and be ready to give an answer, but also be ready to suffer for the name of Christ. Shall we have a song?